Hello very happy new year and welcome to episode number 158 of Turkey Book Talk. Hope you've had a nice break. If you've had a break, thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. For our first episode of 2022, we welcome Chidem Oz. She is research fellow at the University of Bologna's Department of History and Cultures and the author of Moral Crisis in the Ottoman Empire, Society, Politics and Gender during World War I, published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury. The book examines debates about morality in the late Ottoman era when mounting European or Western cultural influence triggered anxiety for many about the loss of traditional religious values, among other things. We talk about that and some of the modern day echoes of those debates in Turkey in the interview. But before we start, let me remind you here that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining us, the Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% of the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount, and indeed that includes the book that we're discussing in this very episode. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Note here to all current members, the discount codes have now been updated for 2022, so check the email that I sent out with this episode for them. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including a number of extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge €3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Chidem Oz. Panic about moral collapse or moral crisis was common in a number of constituencies throughout the late Ottoman era. We talk about the specific forms that alarm took and the subjects people fixated on later in the conversation. But I started by asking Chidem Oz to reflect on how closely this was all related to anxiety about the growing influence of European culture in the 19th and early 20th centuries, which many Muslim commentators worried was triggering the loss of what they saw as authentic Islamic identity. So, as you said, it was a fear. It was um, part of uh, an anxiety about modernization in the Ottoman Empire. And yeah, despite that, it remained understudied, despite all its influence in the debates regarding modernization in the in the empire so morality from the very beginning of ottoman modernization acted as a, a filter for the penetration of european influence in the ottoman empire and it was sometimes expressed in a very violent way it could be revolts even 
and sometimes expressed in a very intellectual way on interpretation of Islamic texts and how to receive novelty in society, in an Islamic Muslim society. But the real discourse became more public during Tanzimat and afterwards, thanks to the participation of a new audience to, to such debates with the emergence of modern public opinion. So new themes emerged in this morality debates on uh, women, centrality of women and um, daily lives, uh, lifestyles and the degree that the Ottoman lifestyles, how it's going to be changed by the, the reforms, by the impact of uh, European influence, European cultural influence mostly. But yes, morality acted as a filter and sometimes a stronghold of uh, resistance to the European cultural penetration into Ottoman society. One of the sections of the book references novels and moralistic novels were a particular genre that emerged in the late Ottoman era. Often these novels took aim at uh, so-called zupes or dandies, sometimes translated as these kind of preening Istanbul men who were often aping European fashions in a very shallow way. We actually published an episode a few years ago on Ahmet Mirtat's famous novel, Felatun Bey and Rakim Effendi. And that's probably the most well-known text that explored those themes. So just talk about how much um, influence that kind of literary production, those novels, had on the popular consciousness at the time in this late Ottoman era, the late 19th century. How did these novels express this anxiety about moral decline as a result of Europeanization? Yes, indeed. Uh, such novels popularized the discourse on morality, moral crisis in a very unexpected level. And often there is a political criticism behind uh, all this popular discourse on morality. For the masses, moral crisis acted as a trigger to provide their participation into the debate about European influence in the, in the Ottoman Empire and how it's going to be, how the, the Muslim society's future going to be. Are we going to adopt all the changes, all cultural changes, or the usual dilemma of Ottoman Turkish modernization to say, are we just going to adopt technological changes of the West, but remain Muslim culturally in this uh, modernization process? And theatres were another key centre of these debates. Theatres, public performance, music consumption were really changing in their form during the 19th century taking on these kind of European popular forms in urban centres, including Istanbul, of course. And they were all also targeted by critics who said they corrupted morality. What was the discourse around these modern forms of entertainment and how did the Ottoman authorities try to control them? Well, these modern forms of entertainment were at the target of uh, criticism because they were all European-style, new-style entertainment, and they were pursued as the channels of penetration of European cultural influence, even without thinking about their content, the, the way it's performed on the stage, to the public, to a mixed public, and with a concept, you know, with new ideas bringing to the, to the stage another life, theatre and other performative arts. So the 
public was, the Ottoman public to say, was really interested in this new styles of entertainment. It was impossible to, to prevent them from participating, even for women. You know, there, were, there was a period, there were some bans about women going to theatres or so, or even appearing on the stage, but it's something impossible to, to stop. And uh, yeah, they were principally considered as forms of, um, as channels of moral corruption, demonstrating bad examples to the youth, the centrality of love stories, for instance, you know, women and men before marriage coming together, arranging their own marriages, their own futures. These were a bit controversial issues when you consider traditional uh, Muslim family formation. Of course, you mentioned there women, you know, these kind of familiar narratives about moral panics and moral standards in society. Very often there, those narratives are centered on women. And obviously that was definitely the case in the period that we're talking about. Theatres were obviously part of that as well because women were appearing on stage and this was seen as a, a scandalous innovation among some conservatives. So where does the big question of women's role in society fit into to this picture? Well, um, a lot <laughs> to say. It occupies a, a great space, you know, to say the broader participation of women in social and economic life. There was already a concern about the patriarchal family how the patriarchal family is going to be, how the future of the patriarchal order is going to be. So the real issue is that there are conservatives, that's sure. But as I said, there is this modernization period, you know, the social lives are being affected and it's like unstoppable. So what are you going to do with that? And the participation of some new ideas, which was new, at least for Turkish nationalism, in the case of Turkish nationalism to the debate, changed the tone of this conservative debate that always confutes any novelty in that sense as against Islam, against religion. So the real debate started with the, with the participation of the nationalists and nationalism into the debate of women's future in, in society. Alcohol is another big part of this whole discourse. Obviously, there's a very long and potted history of alcohol restrictions in the Ottoman Empire, periods of liberalism followed by a crackdown, mostly inspired by religious concerns. These anxieties found particular expression in the 19th century. And uh, I was interested to read in your book that um, one of the ways to, to dissuade people from drinking alcohol was to boost taxes, to prohibit people from drinking. But as you describe it in the book, often these prohibitive attempts, these tax rises very often failed uh, or even had actually the opposite effect. The other interesting point to note on them is that they had this paradoxical effect, we might say, of providing crucial public revenue. So as they rose, as taxes rose, more money came into the coffers. So the state became kind of dependent on people drinking more, which is kind of an interesting irony. And uh, obviously, some of the listeners might be thinking there's a pretty similar moral dilemma that the Turkish government faces today. Uh, I wonder if you were noting those, those similarities as you were doing the research for the book. Yes, indeed. Actually, throughout the book, I tried to show that this moralistic discourse 
always goes hands in hand with with another agenda to say a political one and financial one and alcohol is a perfect example to that in the sense that we see for instance prohibitive and also liberal discourse regarding alcohol i mean had political and cultural implications so you might embrace the habit of uh, drinking or reject it let's say on the on the basis of you know it can be islam religion or another uh, motive this still shows a political positioning there and for the government that's another issue which is the taxes imposing taxes on alcohol and there was also gambling perhaps uh, you would also mention that because the, in the book i discussed these two together in gambling and drinking the mother of all vices and taxes <laughs> part there was always the concern of public order and public morality that's for sure and the concern was uh, sincere in the ottoman empire and of course in turkey too that's for sure but this moralist moralistic discourse serves to the purpose of increasing the amount of taxes on alcohol and the moralistic discourse of course serves to the popular appealing of the political uh, ideological positioning now there was this widespread belief that immorality was imported from abroad as you show in the book many many sources show this narrative of the pure native morality corrupted by nefarious influences from overseas and this was expressed in a anti-foreigner particularly anti-european sentiment religious writers and activists are another interesting part of the book that you explore you know they very often directly linked morality with religion and islamic law perhaps not surprising i'm not saying anything completely original there but they argued basically that the breakdown of moral order would lead to the collapse of social order and ultimately the collapse of the state itself that was an interesting line i think that is again it does have contemporary resonances you know people associating the moral order with the health of the state itself so how much were some observers in the period that you were looking at it directly blaming social moral decline or how they perceived social moral decline with the decline or the weakening of the empire as they saw it well yes that must some that was some kind of a marker to say moral superiority of uh, islam with respect to the european christian powers because they were seen as christian powers Christians advanced in technology but Muslims in the on the other hand advanced in morality moral superiority so Islam is the best religion to to be preserved and the way to preserve passes from preserving it is a moral order the moral order that it prescribed so it was very common to highlight the the fact that Islam is the source of morality even for the the nationalists or other groups it's not only the religious conservatives but they all said that you know islam was was a good source of morality at least maybe not the only but a good source of morality and it should be kept as it is it should never be eliminated as a cultural element in turkish muslim life and moral decline the the perception of moral decline the the cause of moral de- decline to say was different for some it was only the result of divergence from islam for some the context uh, had changed so islam alone was not enough to hold a society together and to establish 
solid moral order in the new age of modernization. But it was a popular idea. I can totally say that loss of land, dissolution of uh, the empire, social problems, they were all stemmed from moral decline. And moral decline was, it had a lot of connotations with uh, with Islam uh, itself and respecting religious uh, religious order. Now, big part of the book centers on the First World War and specifically within the First World War, the spread of prostitution as a way for many women to basically survive in the very difficult circumstances uh, of war. And it's quite a underexplored subject, I suppose uh, we could say. Your book goes into a lot of detail into some of the narratives that were surrounding it, how it emerged and what people were saying about it. And obviously this caused alarm among many. There was alarm over the spread of venereal disease. Fears about the spread of prostitution, especially among Muslim women, were really rampant. And they all fed into this bigger discourse about a moral panic over ethical declines in society. So just talk about that fascinating subject, you know, that that whole discourse of the, the, the moral panic around prostitution and what concrete policies the Ottoman authorities implemented to counter it. Um, okay, so um, on prostitution, at the beginnings of this study, I thought prostitution was considered as the reason of moral decline. But later on, I discovered it was considered a result of moral decline. Most commentators on morality, they considered prostitution as a result of moral decline. So moral decline begins first and prostitution comes later. But on the, on the level of public policy, the spatial isolation of prostitution and the banning of immoral people from living in specific places, which the Ottoman government did during the First World War, it was different. It was, first of all, part of military measures and it was based on the idea of national security. So prostitution or an aspect of public morality had been regarded as part of the problem of national security. So during the war, most people living in the military martial law areas in the Ottoman Empire and in some areas which were in close proximity to the battlefronts, the prostitutes living in those areas, they were banished to the inner Anatolia in cities like Kayseri, for instance, and to stay away from the railway connections and stay away from the military bases. Now, during the war and during this whole period, actually leading up to the war in the late Ottoman era and indeed later in the Republican era, Istanbul was often characterized as cosmopolitan and immoral, essentially, a den of vices that was very dangerous and that was encouraging many of these dangerous moral declines that we're talking about. Just talk about that, how that image of Istanbul was used in these various polemics around morality and declining ethical standards. Well, uh, very much. Yes, Istanbul was uh, really at the center of this because, first of all, you could see 
the new uh, wartime phenomenon of wartime profiteering, the impact of wartime profiteering in the cities the most. We can definitely say that. So the way the profiteers spending their money, the way they live their lives and the contrast, you know, between the combatant soldiers and their families, the poor families and the rich lives of new riches was very visible especially in uh, in Istanbul because there was still the entertainment going on the city life <laughs> was still going on there were some orders about curfews and so but the the things kept uh, running because also it was not close to the to the battlefronts uh, in any case Istanbul was away from the battle it was always under danger there was always the danger but it was away from the from the battlefronts and it was cosmopolitan at the beginning of our talk we talked about these novels about Tanzimat novels, literature, about moral decline in this literature, moral contrasts, good and bad in this literature, which was often situated in Istanbul. The location was Istanbul, and even you can give the address today's Istiklal uh, Street, Beyoğlu, Pera. These were the places representing Western social, uh, Western lifestyles, and often criticized morally, also politically, from a more authentic political uh, view, conservative political view. And with uh, with the war, even more, this consumption and the moral aspect of it, contrasts between the poor, poverty, Anatolian soldier families, or soldiers themselves dying uh, in the battlefronts, and Istanbulites enjoying their lives with its cosmopolitan life ongoing, it really attracted bitter criticism and uh, it was almost uh, reaching to banning of uh, a lot of this entertainment. But in the end, it was not realized. Now, to conclude, some of the listeners will be hearing some of these themes and be making very obvious connections to the present day, because some of the debates around moral alarm, innovations coming from the West and this broader narrative about moral decline, they're very familiar in conservative discourse in Turkey today, despite the fact that 100 years have passed since the period that we're talking about in the book and even longer. Very similar themes, very similar mental landscapes of what we're talking about here. So I wondered if you could conclude really by talking about how these themes, this discourse that you were exploring in the book and that you researched, how that has really echoed down the generations and still today has very uh, strong echoes, I think, the alarm that we see around the one that springs to mind perhaps most clearly is uh, the kind of alarm in Turkey around LGBT rights and the whole discourse about those supposedly coming from abroad, from the West. Very similar to some of the alarmist language that you explore in the book over a hundred years ago. Yes, yes. In the conclusion part of my book, I have a part that I discuss moral crisis today. While writing my book, it often came to my mind, it's like, yes, 100 years ago, but this debate is so similar to me, so so familiar. How is this possible? I kept thinking about it, and at the end I decided to, to say a few words in the book about this, this relation between the past and, uh, and the present, 
One of the common grounds between these old and new debates is the political polarization and division in society. First of all, I yes, studied late Ottoman society, which, which was really politically polarized and divided as, as a divided society. And often we disregard this fact. We often think that, you know, Committee of Union and Progress, there's Turkish nationalism, there is some pan-Islamist voices, uh, there is also pan-Turkist voices coming. But actually, it's more politically polarized than we consider. Of course, it was not the main topic of the book, but I also, I, I at least tried to show that even though sometimes the powerful man, you know, Amir Pasha, tried to impose some strict regulations on public morality or whatever, a lot of other offices uh, argued against him, resisted him, you know, they say that there is the law. You wouldn't expect it. Anyhow, that's another story, but the political polarization is important to, to underline here. And today we still have the debate between secular morality and Islamic morality. And partly it's, of course, today's government uh, stirring up some debates regarding that. They have a good share in these debates. And moral crisis, once again, serves to to set out ideological uh, differences, political positioning. But today, lifestyles appear to be discussed more than the ideological positions uh, themselves. Because probably today, we consider lifestyles as a better way to, to assert our world views. On the other hand, for the political power, the idea of moral crisis could serve as a pretext for social and institutional organization of society and further installation of Islamic values. So we need to preserve the the moral order through Islamic values. On the other hand, there is the other side for the opposition, let's put it this way. The moral crisis serves to, to express a political criticism, just like in the past it was. It exposes kind of hypocrisy of uh, what is being regarded moral in uh, Islamist uh, politics, as well as in society. And it's really, really interesting, the continuity of moral crisis reference in the political debates. But of course, as I said, it owes to the fact that Turkey is a very politically polarized uh, society. And uh, what I also argued in the book was another factor that um, I came across during my research was that mostly the recirculation, revival of the late Ottoman literary works, that was not only something that the recent government did, it was a post-coup d'etat development in Turkey, you know, 1980, September 12, the coup d'etat. Afterwards, there was the, the official ideology of this Turkish Islamic synthesis, which from its name, obviously, which embraces and brings together Turkish nationalism and Islamism, which used morality as an instrumental tool, as an instrumental way to to instill these values, to counter the division between the left and right, which was the pre-coup period was uh, defined with. And during that time, there was uh, a course, uh, for instance, was introduced, religious culture and moral knowledge. It became compulsory, so it united already from its title, religion and morality. So there is no morality separate from, from religion. It could not exist. 
So I saw that most of the articles that were published and I studied in my book, they were republished with the sponsorship of state institutions in the 1980s. And it continued and still continues. Uh, It goes on. This kind of reproduction of nationalist and Islamist works of the late Ottoman era in this Turkish Islamist synthesis, they became taken out of context uh, totally. And they were recirculated as part of this uh, moral values education material. So the theme of moral crisis was revived during that period because most of these works are related to the moral crisis. That was Chidem Oz. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 158, our first episode of 2022. Remember, her book is available to Turkey Book Talk Patreon members for a 30% discount. Indeed, all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members for that 30% discount. Members also get transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, or via Twitter, or via our Facebook page, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter put together by the journalist Diego Cupolo, a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some truly excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 